Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this post-election day in the nation's capital, where we are going to get right to the point because we have an awful lot to talk about now that we can finally declare that Joe Biden is the president-elect. Joining me today is Francesca Chambers, White House correspondent for McClatchy, frequent guest of the podcast, who, Francesca, I hope you've been able to get some sleep over the last few days. (laughs) This is the face of, like, what a reporter who has just been like covering this election for not even like the last two years, like for the last four years, looks like, right? These are, for those who are watching this podcast, that's what these four faces are right now. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it's definitely how my face looks at the, at, at the moment. Um, I won't speak for anyone else. Uh, of course, we are also happy to welcome back to the show Dave Katniss, political correspondent for McClatchy. Dave, I trust you're, you're, you're rested and recovered, ready, ready for some more reporting this week. I feel pretty good, to be honest. It's post-election week, right? So, I mean, you know, I got good sleep last night and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do it again. Let's do 2024. Let's oh God. Ready, set, go. That's what we're talking about on this podcast, right? Perfect. We all, we all agreed. And of course, welcome back to the show, Adam Walner, politics editor for McClatchy, D.C., Walner, welcome back. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of echo Francesca's point, I would I would recommend go, going audio only for, for for the podcast this this week. But even even though I I do, wow. I do think we all even just by the sound of our voices, we all sound actually more rested than I thought we would be on this Monday morning. Uh, but I guess you know having a little bit of a break yesterday from the call on Saturday helps for that. So. So yeah, so I'm, I'm actually feeling a lot more ready for this than, than I would have expected. You haven't spent the weekend in a magic wall, you know, no, just like touching states I can and say looking I, at scenarios. I, I, I consumed uh, zero seconds of cable news on on Sunday, and that uh, d- did a lot for my for, for my own sanity. Well, I would say I feel a great deal better after the last two nights of sleep than I did on Saturday because I'm not sure I would be able to string together <laughs> enough words and enough coherency if we had recorded this podcast on Saturday, but. Without further ado, the election is, for all intents and purposes, over, with one big caveat in Georgia, which, Francesca, I know you're eager to, to talk about, of course. <laughs> but we had, well, I, I think you can describe it as a strange election. This is a race where Joe Biden appears on track to win over 300 electoral votes, including the state of Georgia. Democrats have made their long-awaited breakthrough there. And yet, in the aftermath of this election, Democrats, particularly down the ballot, where they did suffer some losses in the House and some unexpected reversals of fortune in the Senate, seem intent on recriminations and criticizing one another and pointing out explanations for why the party didn't do better. Again, even as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win this race. Dave, I mean, if you had told us two weeks ago that Joe Biden won Georgia and won over 300 electoral votes, we would have said that this election proceeded about as we had expected at the time, about as the polls had suggested it would at the time. But that that's not where we're in. It help, help, help break that down for us. Well, the order of events matters, right? The fact that Florida came in and sort of, you know, was sort of a, a rain cloud on Democrats early in the evening. I don't even know if it was the evening or the next morning or like because it became election week, And also how they counted the ballots, right? Like the fact that Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin counted mail-in ballots that were Democratic ballots later made it seem like at one point Biden was down by 20 points in Pennsylvania. So just mentally, the perception of how we count ballots, because it's we all watch this on television and they're they're blasted on chirons, 
you know, it looked like a tough night for Democrats early on Tuesday into Wednesday morning. And then obviously everything comes in and now it looks like, I mean, there's, there's people already out there saying this wasn't a close election. 306 electoral votes is a big win. Two Flipping two historically red states, Arizona and Georgia, those are big accomplishments for Democrats. So I was joking to a friend the other day, imagine if we didn't even tabulate the results and just release the winner at the end. Like we didn't have these running counts on TV. That would totally change the perception of who's winning, who's losing. You would just get the results whenever they were finished. Here's 100%, 50 to 48. Here's the winner. I mean, how we decide to count these elections, sort of, you know, this is a mechanical point and a, and a sort of a television media event point, I think goes a long way in how we perceive them. You're absolutely right, and it's actually a little bit of a reminder of the 2018 midterms, uh, when I think it took Democrats, some Democrats, weeks to realize that it had been a blowout election on their behalf because they saw, you know, returns in Florida really turn south, and Claire McCaskill and Joe Donnelly were getting hammered. They eventually lost, but they actually lost by much smaller margins than we thought on election mm -hmm. night, and the California right. returns, you know, hadn't come in yet, and because of the way they vote, it takes weeks. Right. Um, you know, and then I can only try to imagine the drama that would build if we had reached, say, like Thursday or Friday, and the results hadn't been released yet from some of the the states. But it has had a huge uh, effect on on perception. And and Walner, I mean, the the truth is, because I, I I really do see it both ways. I mean, Biden did win over three hundred electoral votes. He did break through in places like Georgia, not just Georgia, but in Arizona, too. It appears he's still on track to win there. But the the margins there, you're talking about, you know, if, if what, 100,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Georgia and Arizona go differently, Donald Trump wins re-election. I mean, in some ways, this was still a very close race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's really, you know, two ways of, of looking at it. If you're a Democrat, you know, kind of the glass are half full or half empty, right? You know, on the one hand, yeah, he is well on his way to, you know, gaining over 300 electoral votes. He could end up with 306, which is exactly what Donald Trump won with in 2016, with the difference being Biden obviously winning the, the popular vote and is going to, you know, easily surpass um, Hillary Clinton's popular vote margin. It'll be really interesting to see, especially as more ballots come in. You know, we're not even thinking about states like California, New York, where there are a lot of people voted by mail. That's really going to bump up Biden's, you know, popular vote margin to make upwards of five million. So you you look at those two numbers on their on their own, and you say, yeah, that's that's a great night for Democrats. But obviously, two huge caveats there. One, as you mentioned, that in all of these battleground states, the margins were a lot narrower, uh, particularly in the upper Midwest. I think the Democrats had hoped, right? I think Arizona, Georgia, you know, there was always an expectation that those were going to be close. But I th coming into election day, Democrats, I think, more or less thought, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin in particular were in the bag. They didn't have to worry about them. And they felt pretty good about Pennsylvania. But obviously, the way that those margins are looking now, even as, again, you know, we don't have the total final results just yet. But, you know, they ended up kind of escaping there, there narrowly. And, you know, again, it, it, it kind of just makes you think about, oh, it's a easily could have been a 2016 scenario where, yeah, we win the popular vote pretty easily. But you flip, you know, a couple, you know. Tens of thousands of votes in these critical swing states could be looking things a little bit differently. But the but the second thing that I think has you know Democrats really dismayed at this moment, even as Joe Biden is the president elect, is the the down ballot, right? Like they did not have 
the the night, the week at all that they expected down ballot, right? They were expecting to expand their, their House majority. That's going to be fairly diminished by the time this is all said and done. They thought that they were well on their way to taking back the, the Senate majority. And now, you know, they're going to have to somehow come up with two wins in, in, a, in the runoffs in, in Georgia here in January just to get to, to 50-50. So I think, you know, a lot of Democrats, what the polls had suggested coming into Tuesday was not only will Joe Biden win, but we're going to have, we're going to make huge gains up and down the ballot. And this is just, this is going to be a total repudiation of not only President Trump, but his entire Republican party of the last four years. They didn't quite get, you know, that complete of a victory. And so I think that's why you're, you have kind of these, these mixed feelings, you know, even at this point from Democrats. Again, it's, it's hard to know exactly which party or if either party should really be beating their chest because Francesca, the Republicans down the ballot can feel good about the, the Senate and the House, assuming that they hold on in the two Georgia runoff seats. But at the same time, I mean, look, an incumbent president just lost for the first time since 1992. He did manage to, to lose traditional Republican states like Arizona and Georgia, it seems. I mean, this is still, even if the margins were tight, I mean, this seems like a stinging rebuke for the White House. But how is it being taken there by by allies of the president. Of course, the president himself is not conceded yet. So I guess he right. wouldn't see it as a as a stinging rebuke just yet. Well, allies of the president, you know, Republicans, conservatives, who who have organizations, right, that, that are still gonna exist, that that still need to, you know, to to work with the the incoming Biden team, right? Like they they actually have a, a fairly good outlook on it. They thought, and I wrote about this last week, so I'm so glad you brought this up. They thought that they were going to get their, their butts whooped. There's, for lack of a better term, in these state houses races, they, they thought that they were going to lose at least six state house races. And that didn't happen. They thought that they were going to lose house seats and they gained house seats instead. You know, the Senate hangs in the balance. That's true. But the, the narrative leading into that was that Republicans probably wouldn't keep the Senate either. So, you know, yes, the presidency is a big problem for them. But at the same time, with all things being taken into account, they see this as the best possible scenario for them, given that Donald Trump was not expected to win in the first place. They had already resigned themselves to the fact that that, you know, that wasn't likely to happen. So they got these these three other things. Eh, They're saying, all right, that's it. That's a decent day. Francesca, I mean, what, what is your sense of whether or not the president is going to concede in this race at some point or whether or not that's ultimately going to be even necessary? moving forward. So everything that I have heard from my sources who were close to the president, close to the White House, is that they they actually don't expect any sort of a formal concession the way that we're envisioning it. We're really, once again, trying to apply a really traditional model to a very untraditional president here, that if anything, that he is likely to continue claiming as he is now, that even if he, he gets to a point right where he suggests that he lost or says that he lost, it would be because he's claiming that it was stolen from him. It was taken from him. And I'm not endorsing that point of view in any way. I'm just saying that that is how Trump world sees how he is likely to respond to this as we move forward. Let's zoom back out for a moment. And let's, let's again kind of look at this from the perspective of why didn't Democrats do as well as they had, they had thought. And I'm going to pose the question first to you, Dave, because, you know, there were, we saw a lot of Finger pointing afterward from down ballot Democrats, from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Connor Lamb to Abigail Spanberger. And a whole lot of explanations kind of come to mind first, right? I mean, I think you have to take a look at the coronavirus pandemic and whether or not that was the sort of 
big influencer of voters that we, we thought it was, or at least did it influence them in the way that we thought it would. At the same time, you seem to have this argument breaking out about tactics right now. And it seems like there's going to be a discussion about whether or not Democrats are spending enough on digital and maybe whether or not Joe Biden's decision to not canvas, to go door to door, maybe hurt them with some voters, hurt them with some turnout. What, what do you what do you think, Dave? So I would zoom in. A source I have in Pennsylvania sent me the results from a county I was in when I was covering a story there a month ago. Cambria County, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. All the Democrats there said, look, Joe Biden is going to perform better in rural areas than Hillary Clinton. This is what's going to make the difference. He got the exact same percentage as Hillary Clinton. And if you look at all these other counties that I was pointed to, rural Democrats are like, we're coming home. He's going to, you know, he's going to increase margins here in these places. It just did not happen. I think there are 206 pivot counties that went for Obama twice and then flipped to Trump. I looked at it today. Biden only won about two dozen of those back. Most of those counties stayed with Trump. Now, these are rural counties. They're outstate. They don't have a lot of people. But the thing that Trump was able to do is that he increased his turnout. And that, I think, was missed by the pollsters. A lot of reporters eye rolled at it when they said, look, we've got this turnout operation. We're turning out more people this time. Now, look, there are more Democrats in this country than Republicans. Because, I mean, that was proven last time, right? Like the popular vote, they're just more Democratic voters. We know the Electoral College, though, that that does not mean a clean victory. So my sort of two big takeaways is that Biden was not able to pierce through the rural vote. The parties got further apart, a bigger urban vote for, for, for Democrats all across the country, but a bigger rural vote. For Republicans, one stat I wanted to pass along, I'm digging into Georgia. So I looked at the six counties around Atlanta, the Atlanta metropolitan area blowing up for Democrats. That was the whole reason Biden won. He netted 300,000 more votes out of metro Atlanta than Hillary Clinton did. If you go outside the rural areas, he didn't do any better. Maybe a point here, a point there. There was not much of a difference. Trump still crushed all outside around Atlanta. But then you look at those six core counties around Atlanta, they they registered new voters there. It's more diverse. African-American women, young people came out. That was the difference in just that, that, that one state. And then I looked at, I mean, Milwaukee, huge amount of new votes for Biden. Philadelphia, huge amount of new votes. But then you look at the rest of the areas in these states and, and Trump got more vote out of, out of his counties. So, it's stratification, it's partisan hardening, I think, on both sides, and it's that urban-rural divide. Yeah, that that's, is getting that's what struck me too, Dave, as I was, over the past few days, just looking at the county-by-county county maps, comparing you know 2020 to 2016 across these battleground states, they look almost exactly the same, just from the broad overview, if you're looking at what counties right. are red, which are blue, which is something I was not necessarily expecting because... Right. I did, you know, kind of think, you know, based on some of the reporting we've done and this, just what's been out there that not only would Biden be able to, you know, drive up turnout in the cities, uh, you know, be able to do a little bit better with non-white voters than Hillary did and certainly do better in the suburbs, but he also might be able to eat into some of those margins in more rural white working class areas, take back some of those Obama Trump counties. And that really was, was not the case. But again, you know, it does point to some of the reporting that both you and, and Alex have, have done, you know, over, over the past, you know, year that like, you know, I, a lot of operatives in both parties said like, you know, there still is an opportunity here for Trump to drive up his margins even further. 
in these red areas. And I think um, just to right. point to another state where I thought that was uh, extremely striking was was Texas. So if you just look at the overall number of votes that that the candidates received, I mean, Joe Biden got more than 5.2 million votes in Texas, right? Hillary Clinton got 3.9 million. I think if you would have told that to Democrats heading into Tuesday, they're saying, we're taking Texas. That's amazing. Yeah. But Trump right. went from 4.7 million in 2016 to nearly 5.9 million. He got 1.2 million more votes in Texas. Who knew there were that many more yeah. Republican votes to be had in a state like Texas? I've seen some people start, they've kind of been referring to it as a, as a double wave, I think. I, maybe it was Dan Pfeiffer who said that. I don't want to want to steal that term from anybody, but that ultimately is what it looks like where, you know, turnout was way up on both sides and it was more or less a rerun of the 2016 map. But this time Biden was just able to get those margins to where he needed to uh, in, in key states and in key areas within those states. Francesca, a lot of the post-election analysis has also fixated on this apparent result that Donald Trump and the GOP did better with Latino voters and did better with African-Americans in some respects. Joe Biden won more votes in places like Milwaukee and Philadelphia, but the margins, at least the way the, the results look now, the margins weren't quite what they were in 2016. And we did actually see this in some of the pre-election polling that the, the former vice president's numbers with the African-American community weren't, you know, even replicating what Hillary Clinton received, much less Barack Obama. This would seem to be an important development for the GOP moving forward, because if you talk to some of their strategists thinking long term about the party, their viability comes from winning over working class Latinos and African-American men. And even if those voters voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden in the whole, you did start to see some movement this election, it seems. Yeah. And may I just say really quickly here, we may not be talking, uh, done talking about the election, but my computer is, and it is uh, maybe going to die here in a minute. So if I cut out for a second, have to move to my phone and you guys lose me for a second, I'll be right back. However, you know, you point out a really key thing about the, the Republican Party and another reason that they felt like any sense of optimism, right, coming out of this election is that they saw movement with Hispanics in Texas and in Florida that, yeah, uh, you know, two states that Donald Trump did win, by the way, they, they also saw, you know, improvement slightly with black men. And I know, Alex, you had been writing about that uh, before the election and called that as well. And those are key areas where if the Republican Party is going to be able to succeed at winning another presidential race, they cannot just be the party of white working class you know, folks, and, and understandably, Donald Trump, you know, wouldn't need to improve his margins there too. But but as a broader point, and this is something that the, the GOP has really been struggling with for a number of years, this was something that Mitt Romney also struggled with when he was the Republican candidate, is how do they make themselves more appealing to voters of color? And so in this election, they did see a little movement on that front, and they feel that their economic message is it was very successful, that it was helpful to that, and that maybe the messenger was off, right? That Donald Trump is a messenger himself because of the other things he was doing, the things that we've been talking about, the grievance-ridden speeches, those were problematic. But the way that he explained the economy to people who feel left out and left behind, promising to bring back manufacturing, those sorts of things, really at least resonated with, with voters and the Republican Party can build on that moving forward. You know, one of the things I'm going to look for as the returns come in and we get this sort of full 100% picture of what happened in this election, I'm going to want to see if the geographic variability holds up. Because it seems like, I mean, if you look at the Rio Grande Valley, for instance, Latinos there really broke against, in some cases, broke fully against Joe Biden. In Nevada and in Arizona, it doesn't seem as if the trend is nearly as pronounced. 
And I think you see that even in some rural areas and in places like Indiana, where again, you know, Joe Biden got hammered in some of these rural counties. There were some smaller ones in Pennsylvania, particularly those closer to Scranton. So maybe there's something to that uh, where Joe Biden did outperform yeah. Hillary Clinton by just a little bit. I'm thinking like Northumberland County or Snyder County and, and Pennsylvania, kind of in the T, but maybe close enough to Scranton that there was some some carryover. I mean, a lot of the re- returns when you were watching them, even on election night, in the days that followed it were really hard to make sense of because we're used to seeing you know, really demographics move in the same direction, no matter what their geographic location. And it doesn't seem as if that necessarily was the case this time around. You know, going forward here, Dave, I mean, you you and Francesca are writing about the Georgia Senate race, and it feels like those are going to be, those are important because control of the Senate is on the line, for one thing, first and foremost. But also, I mean, I think there are a lot of questions about the future of each party's coalition, right? I mean, and and the truth is, you know, for for Democrats, the question is, are they going to be able to win over those kind of numbers in Metro Atlanta that you explained when Donald Trump isn't on the ticket and when voters are already obviously starting to consider and contemplate a post-Trump future? I mean, that seems like the first question here. Those suburban voters, in particular white suburban voters, are they still going to be Democrats if Donald Trump isn't on the ballot? I think it's going to be tough, especially in a place like Georgia. John Ossoff got 89,000 fewer votes than Joe Biden in Georgia, it was enough to keep Purdue under 50%, but he's already starting behind going in, going into the general. And even when I was down there the the week before the election, just a few weeks ago, and a lot of even Democratic operatives said to me, you know, we're worried about ticket splitters on this, people that are through with Trump, but are going to want to check on a Biden administration. And I think some of Francesca's reporting, some of my reporting sort of indicates that's all Republicans are going to talk about for the next 55 days is, look, this is a check on Biden and Harris socialism, because if you don't have a Republican Senate, you're going to have Bernie Sanders as labor secretary and Elizabeth Warren as Treasury secretary and AOC running the whole bill, you know, like, they're just going to use, I think, you know, brimstone and fire, and that's going to be their one message. I think the Democratic message is a little more complicated. I mean, John Ossoff already has an ad out. He's talking about the coronavirus pandemic, improving access to health care. They want to talk about infrastructure. They, you know, they want to try to hone in on these more broadly bipartisan policy issues while the Republicans are going to be like, this is about the future of the country. So it's sort of, you know, trying to localize and go a little bit smaller versus versus going wider. I, I was I was texting with some Democratic operatives this morning and they're I think even trying to work out how they they know this is going to be nationalized, right? Like these two races are going to be hugely nationalized events and how they make the argument that a Democratic Senate is beneficial to those, I hate the cliche, but suburban Republican women, that they're willing to to stay on the Democratic side, their down ticket. I think it's going to be a challenge, though, for Democrats. Part of the challenge for Republicans, though, is their Senate candidates had so much success because they were able to benefit from the turnout surge that seems connected to Donald Trump among white working class voters while still peeling off, as Dave said, just a few of those college educated voters, ticket splitters. Does the formula begin to change if Trump isn't on the ballot? This is going to provide a great early test here of what both parties coalitions look like when 
you know, Trump is not on the ballot, right? Because Trump obviously is a driver of turnout for, for both parties. I think, you know, one thing that, that, you know, one number I saw that would appear to be working in, in the Republicans' favor, um, at least in the Purdue-Ossoff race, is that David Purdue actually slightly, very slightly outran Donald Trump. In, in Georgia, where Ossoff actually ended up being a decent chunk behind Joe Biden. So, you know, the fact that, you know, Purdue ha- has the advantage of, of incumbency, you know, the points Dave was making about how Republicans now are going to be able to hammer home this message, message of being a check on, you know, Joe Biden and the radical left would seem to, to, to work in their favor. But, but yeah, I think, you know, that's going to be the big question. Does Georgia now go, you know, back in, in January, does it go back to kind of more of what it looked like coming into to, to 2020? Does it look more like 2018 or 2016, where it's still going to be very narrow, but you would, you know, just given the traditional uh, Republican nature of that state, you'd have to give a slight edge there? Or do, do those suburbs and, and, and the cities, do they still come out in full force for, for a Democrat, even when it's not a presidential race when we normally see these, these high levels of turnout. So, I mean, it's kind of helpful for, for us, uh, you know, a political analyst here who, who uh, have these questions about what both parties' coalitions are going to look like post-Trump. Uh, we're going to get a, a decent sense of that here in, in just a couple months. I mean, there is something of a gray zone because, of course, Trump will still be in the White House. And I was thinking that if you're a Democrat and you're concerned that turnout, you know, in your base is going to drop. Well, look, Donald Trump could still tweet. Donald Trump could still fire people. Donald Trump could still say things from the White House that energize your base. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the motivator that it has been these previous four years again as he's on his way out. But it just, it, it does at, at offer the first preview of what a post-Trump world looks like. I think I'd rather be Republicans than that. I mean, that's typically how it works. When you hold the White House, particularly in a midterm election cycle, you're squarely behind the eight ball. But a lot of things have been screwy in politics, haven't followed form recently. Okay, I think we're going to leave it there. Adam, Dave, Francesca, thank you for participating in this emergency post-election podcast. (laughs) Um, Appreciate everyone making making the time. Want to uh, thank our producer, Jeremy Shearer, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. This is going to be a two-episode week. From Beyond the Bubble, we will be returning to you Thursday morning with another all-new episode back on our regularly scheduled time. Until then, take care.